In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Always when we pray, but especially today on Good Friday, we want to open our eyes, to open the eyes of our soul to see. Because the cross, what we are commemorating this afternoon, is a revelation, an unveiling, a pulling back of a curtain that allows us to see the truth of who God is and what it means when we hear that he loves us. But opening our eyes, and especially the eyes of our soul, is not without effort. Right now, as we try to pray, we have to make an effort. And that's not being insincere, it's just being human making the effort to push aside our excessive habituation, if I can use it that, way, that word, that expression, to the cross. We're so used to seeing the crucifix. It's so normal. We look past it. It's what decorates churches. Perhaps we have it in our house or in your apartment. It's normal. Just like oysters, perhaps, who cover over an irritating grain of sand with the shiny beauty of a pearl, we tend to protect ourselves from the cross. And at least once a year, the church invites us to rub our dreary eyes and remind ourselves to see clearly how shocking the cross is is. What the Son of God did, what he took on to himself for love of you and of me. Imagine how it was for the very first Christians, the cross. And it's actually an interesting thing to know, just as a historical point, that pretty much in the first two centuries of Christianity, there really wasn't any representation artistically of the cross. No paintings, no statues. It was still very shocking. They preached it, they understood it, but it hadn't declined into um, decoration. I'm not saying that's what it is for our churches. We still have it, and it can very be much something that helps us. But for the Fitz Christians, it was very real because they had first-hand experience of what crucifixion was. They had seen the blood. They had heard the screams. They had experienced Romans crucifying countless people. One of our historical sources for understanding crucifixion actually comes from Cicero. And Cicero, at a certain moment, Cicero we have one of the, the most prolific writers of Roman antiquity that we actually conserve uh, to this day. And at a certain point, Cicero had a legal case against the governor of Sicily, a man by the name of Verres. 
And one of the things that Cicero was taking against this fellow who was the governor of Sicily is that he was accused of having crucified a Roman citizen, something that was completely forbidden and allowed. And he was accused of having crucified him even though he knew that he was a Roman citizen. And in the letter, Cicero says this. He's going on and on about different things about Verus, but at a certain point in the letter, he says this about crucifixion. He says, It is the most miserable and the most painful punishment appropriate to slaves alone. It is a crime to bind a Roman citizen. To scourge him is a wickedness. To put him to death is almost parricide. What shall I say of crucifying him? So guilty an action cannot by any possibility be adequately expressed by any name bad enough for it. And later on in the letter he says, Roman citizens shouldn't even use the word crucifixion. It was just so repulsive, so unimaginable. But of course, this afternoon, you and I want to see the cross as Cicero didn't. We want to contemplate Jesus on the cross not to shock ourselves because of horror, but to see through that horror the light of the resurrection. That's the revelation. That the cross in Jesus was not simply a an indescribable moment of torture, but it was an expression of God's love. Now, in order to see that, in order for us to pray about it, I'd like to reach back to the Last Supper, to this dialogue between Peter and Jesus. In John's Gospel, he spends quite a bit of time narrating the events of the Last Supper, which we commemorated last night on Holy Thursday. And in that dialogue between Peter and Jesus, it happens right after, awkwardly and nervously, Judas has left. He's gone to betray Jesus. He stepped out, and as St. John says, it was dark, it was night. And once Judas has left, Jesus turns to the eleven, and he says to them, Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. These words are so filled with meaning. Where I am going, you cannot come. Because Jesus is not only speaking about the physical suffering that he's about to face, but most importantly, the spiritual suffering what he is about to do by drawing onto himself the sin of all time. To allow the ancient enemy, the evil one, to have his way with him. Where I am going, you cannot come. And Peter hears this. He hears, if you like, the solitude of these words. Because there's an extraordinary solitude 
in what Jesus says to his closest friends. He looks at them and says, you're about to abandon me. You're going to leave me. And where I am going for you, for love of you, you can't come with me. Only I can do this. And Peter senses that solitude and he genuinely doesn't want to leave Jesus alone. He sincerely doesn't. So Peter says to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. As you and I try to pray right now on this Good Friday, as we foster in our hearts, each one of us personally, a desire to put ourselves before the cross of Christ. Let's enter into this dialogue between Peter and Jesus. Let's say with Peter, Lord, where are you going? Why can't I be moved by what I see? Why do I remain numb before the cross? Indeed, even bored, distracted, untouched. Why don't I understand more clearly what you are doing? Why can I, can I not go with you? And we also need to hear what Jesus says to Peter. Where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow afterward. In other words, by yourself, you cannot understand what I am doing on the cross. Study and thinking is important, but it's not enough. My Holy Spirit must guide you and lead you. And after you receive the Holy Spirit, you will follow me into the mystery of the cross. And this is what prayer is. Prayer is always a call and response. We express sincere desire to Jesus as sincere as we can, right? Not perfectly sincere, but as sincere as we can. And Jesus invites us to abandon our normal ways of thinking and to receive from him. And to pray before the cross, to understand, again, not as a, an intellectual proposition, but to understand in our bones what Christ wants to reveal to us on a cross. We have to be willing, and I'd say even more, we have to make the effort to put aside our habitual way of thinking, open ourselves up to something much, much greater. And to try and get at this, I'd like to try to um, hijack a text a text from a very popular book at the moment by this fellow by the name of Jordan Peterson, who is topping all the bestseller lists with his 12 rules of life and all this sort of thing and talking about lobsters and serotonin and all these other sorts of things. But in his fourth rule, he, he talks about in his own kind of way, and this is why I say I want to hijack his text because I want to take what he says and maybe redirect it in a little different sort of a way that can help us in our in our prayer in a more supernatural way. In his fourth rule, he speaks about an existential faith. 
An existential faith in the goodness of being over against our experience that life is pretty dreary a lot of times, hard, and that it hurts more than we would like it to. But how do we develop that faith, he says. This is his suggestion. You might start by not thinking, or more accurately, but less trenchantly, by refusing to subjugate your faith to your current rationality and its narrowness of view. This doesn't mean make yourself stupid. It means the opposite. It means instead that you must quit maneuvering and calculating and conniving and scheming and enforcing and demanding and avoiding and ignoring and punishing. It means you must place your old strategies aside. It means instead that you must pay attention as you may never have paid attention before. I think it's a very realistic, very gritty description of what it means to have a real conversion of faith. Am I willing to refuse to subjugate my faith to my current rationality? And as he says, this doesn't mean, oh, I make myself stupid and stop thinking. Just kind of go on autopilot and let other people tell me what to believe. It means that I'm willing to put all of that ignoring and avoiding and all the strategies that we use to protect ourselves, put it aside and pay attention. And right now, what you and I want to try to do is pay attention to Jesus on the cross. To stop thinking and pay attention so that something much bigger than our thoughts can come in and shake us to the very core of our being. St. Paul, writing to the first Christians, often spoke about the cross. And let's try to follow some of his words to understand what Jesus is doing on the cross. Speaking to the Christians in Corinth, he says, So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does it mean that Jesus was made sin on the cross? Well, some people have understood this throughout history and in different moments as if Jesus literally became a sinner so that all of God's wrath against sin could just rain down on Jesus and he would take our place. He would get the punishment that was coming for us. So all of that anger goes on to Jesus on the cross. God isn't angry anymore. It's like, okay, it's over now. And then we can be forgiven and God reconciles us to himself. This idea of substitution. Jesus steps into the breach and takes the hit for you and me. 
One of the several problems with this is that implicit in all of this is an angry God who needs satisfaction, needs an answer. But Jesus himself, in one of the most popular and famous quotes of Scripture, John 3.16, says that God so loved the world that he sent his only son. He doesn't say God was so angry with the world that he sent his son in order that he could vent his anger, get it out of his system almost. When Jesus becomes sin on the cross, he's not taking our punishment for us. He is expressing his deep love for each and every one of us. Let's think about it this way. In the very beginning, God created the world good. He created it to be a place where we could receive his infinite fatherly love and respond to it in our bodies and in this universe and creation that he had created to be the place for us to live in that perfect harmony with him. But evil snuck in and introduced sin. In abusing our freedom, we were corrupted by that experience. And the ancient serpent introduced the venom of sin and suffering and death. Now, fortunately, here in Ireland, thanks to St. Patrick, we don't have to deal with snakes, right? It's something we don't have to worry ourselves about. There's a lot of places in the world where you do, actually, and poisonous snakes and their dangerous business. Now, in certain parts of South America and Africa as well, I think even in Asia as well, and I know this from having grown up in South Texas, it kind of made its way up. There's a practice among some people, I wouldn't recommend it if you ever get bit by a poisonous snake necessarily, but some people uh, do talk about using a snake stone. The idea of a snake stone is it can take different forms. Sometimes it's an animal bone that's been blackened, or sometimes it's a certain kind of black quartz. But the idea is that when a person has been bitten, what happens is that venom spreads throughout the entire body. It's coursing through their veins and it starts to affect their nervous system, depending on the venom. But what people believe is if you take on that bite and you place a snake stone there, through some sort of special property in the stone, it draws the venom from all over the body into a condensed point, right? where the bite happened and then it can be drawn out and the person is saved. Like I say, if you get bit by a snake, go to the the A&E, don't (laughs) pull out a black stone, right? But this is the idea. And I just want to, whether or not it's true or not in terms of health, I want to use it as an image. Because I think there's a way in which it could help us understand what Jesus is actually doing on the cross. Because the cross is not simply an example of a wonderful, loving person who heroically suffered an unjust death 2,000 years ago. Jesus is the incarnate Word of God and perfect man, both. And as such, 
Jesus came into the world because the God the Father so loved the world that he wanted to get out of us that venom of sin and of suffering. And on the cross, Jesus mystically but truly draws on to himself all of the horror, all of the suffering, all of the rejection of sin from the beginning of time until the end of time. Every single individual sin, every tear, every scream, every uh, yelling and crying out in despair, all of that, all the mediocrity too, the love of comfort, the shabby preference for what is normal instead of what is great, all of that across all time, Jesus draws it into his very flesh, into his body. He brings it to a point. And having brought it to a point, he transforms it through his perfect love as the Son. He brings it into that infinite fire of his love that he shares with the Father, which we call the Holy Spirit, and it is transformed. As St. Paul says, he nailed sin to the cross. He became sin and destroyed it. Not because he was placating an angry father, but rather he was obeying a loving father who no longer wanted to see you and I being destroyed from the inside by this venom, but in a shocking way loves you and me so much that he would take it into himself, take it out of us, so that he might in turn give us what was most unique about himself, being God's only child. In a sense, the cross, through Jesus' sacrifice, becomes a bridge. This mediation point. Our sin, our weakness, our suffering comes into contact with Jesus. He takes it away and gives us what is his, being God's child. This is what redemption means. You and I, of course, still experience weakness, suffering, the effects of sin, not only of others, but of our own as well. It's not until we reach the final resurrection that this process will finally be concluded. But today, on Good Friday, we want to remind ourselves that once and for all, Jesus has come and dealt with sin. He has healed it. And he has opened up for you and for me a bridge, a way of coming into contact with that love and having that venom sucked out of us so that we might experience the life and the love that we were created for. That bridge is the cross, that bridge is made present, represented in every Mass. 
That bridge is extended to us every time the priest in the sacrament of confession pronounces the words of absolution. Jesus, as long as this age continues, has left for his church real, visible, physical means of coming into contact with what he did on the cross. That wood, that sacred wood that today in the Good Friday ceremonies you will come up and kiss as a way of helping us realize that we come into contact with the cross. Let's do it with that desire and with that belief that Jesus wants to draw out of you and me everything that is opposition, everything that is, that is laziness and indifference and self-importance and vanity. All of those, those things that, that poison life. He wants to draw it out and give us something new. Right now, in your prayer, ask for the courage, for the grace, to believe in the power of the cross. Right now, I've just made some considerations, theological if you like, to try to understand a little bit what Jesus is doing on the cross. It is a great mystery. And we can try to sort of, kind of, come close to it in our minds. We do get glimpses of light. We can correct mistaken ways of understanding. But it's most importantly when we let down our guard and say, Lord, in my weakness I cry out to you. I want to be next to you. Give me your Holy Spirit so that I can follow you, so that I can be freed from this sin. And it's important that we have that hope not only for ourselves, but also for others who suffer. And there's so much suffering in the world. So much horror in the world. The consequences of all of the murders and the rapes and the tortures and the abuse, the anguish and the uncertainty of poverty and hunger and destitution and homelessness, all of these things that are a scandal and a challenge to the affirmation that God is love, and that we as Christians, we don't hide from the scandal of evil. We don't stick our heads in the sand and sing little cheesy Jesus loves us songs to console ourselves. We look at the cross. That's where it gets dealt with. We believe in a love that is so powerful that it can take in all of that. All of that that scandalizes our belief that takes it into himself and transforms it in the cross. We believe in a love that is that strong. It's that powerful. It's that close to you and me. Jesus' mother stood at the foot of the cross saying yes to what her son was doing, trying to support him, trying to accompany him, 
Today, on Good Friday, let's try to stand next to Mary as well. As we look up at the cross, but in a way that Mary didn't need to, you and I need to look up at the cross with Mary at our side and realize that the agony and the pain that is like an electric shock going through Jesus' body also has to do with me, with my rejection, with my sin. And Lord, I repent of that. It pains me that I have sinned against you. But I accept your love for me. I don't want to resist it. I don't want to hold back. I want to be forgiven. And being forgiven means that I am willing to accept your mercy and to do it joyfully. This is the mystery of Good Friday. This bittersweet combination of recognizing my sin in the light of this love that is revealed to me on the cross. A love that has no limits. A love that puts no conditions. All it asks is my free response. It will not force itself on me. It can only reach me if I willingly come to the cross and embrace it so that true life, the life that God has created us to have and the life that he wants to give us, can actually be mine. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father-in-Law, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.